Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where it's all about increasing the profitability of your farm by working smarter, not harder. G'day and welcome once again to Profitable Farmer. Um, I hope there's a little bit of rain falling as we move into May and, um, you know, the season proper really does now get underway. I hope you're all well. Every six months or thereabouts, we invite Terry Tran, our resident investment specialist, to join us on Profitable Farmer, just to give us the bigger picture, to help us get a sense of what's playing out in the global market and to talk equities and shares and investing. Um, I think it was about six months ago that we had Terry on board with us. And so I'm delighted once again to welcome you back to Profitable Farmer, Terry. I always enjoy our time together and, and know that we've all got so much to learn from you. Likewise, Jeffrey. I always enjoy our sessions together. Perfect. So thanks for joining us, Terry. So just to kick off, I'm not going to say that there is an aftermath, but COVID has been around for a little while. Mm. I um, was chatting to one of my mentors the other day who had been researching what happened after previous pandemics, Terry, with the Spanish flu as the example. And um, most of us probably have heard the media narrative around doom and gloom by way of economy, but he had a very different view. After the Spanish flu, I understand there was low inflation, low interest rates, um, a latent workforce, a lot of government support thrown at seeing economies recover. And there was actually a really significant boom post Spanish flu. I'm just keen to get your take on that. And how are you feeling about our local and perhaps even a broader economy on the other side of this thing called COVID? Uh, I do believe that very similar to what you just mentioned about the Spanish food post-pandemic, that we, we are seeing a similar thing, uh, just with the amount and especially the speed of the, the amount of government stimulus that's come on board. Because frankly speaking, if, if the government did step, step in and do what they did, the, the financial markets as well as the economic system would have actually collapsed uh, quite dramatically and possibly even gone even into a deeper uh, depression or recession than uh, the GFC that we had uh, back in 2007-2008. So what they've done is, in a, in a way, the right thing. Um, and they've, they've stopped that, you know, that, that market decline, which the markets at that time back in March, uh, I believe it was the 25th of Mar- March 2020, when the markets declined by about 35% uh, globally. And when the governments, especially the Fed, US Fed that, that came in and stopped, started stepping into support the markets, then globally around the world, all the other governments followed suit, and hence they put a stop to that that continued uh, economic as well as market decline. So, Terry, with that, does anyone really have a handle on the extent of government intervention that has played out locally and globally? How much has government stepped in to support? I think the question is regards to how much in terms of the effect of the government support it's been tremendous because besides the, the you know the stimulus and the the payments that the pay, the government's made to small medium sized businesses as well as also even some of the large industries as well what they've also done is indirectly created confidence and i'd probably say even overconfidence where people just see this ongoing support and i think they may be going towards that that potentially even overstepping their mark where there's now too much support that uh, it's creating over time a, what I call an asset bubble, either both inside the property market as well as stock market as well, because things 
when I'm doing the investing at, the, at this point in time, things are actually quite expensive. So there's no longer that cheap assets because people are finding that they're not getting the returns from, say, term deposits or you know putting money in the bank because it's literally paying nothing these days. Um, and they're trying to find a home for their part cash. And where else can they put it besides the two main asset classes, which is, of course, you know, property or uh, in terms of liquidity, the stock market. And that's what's really driving prices over the last six months now. So the debt that's funded that and, and the printing of money, what's your comment on inflation and changes that might play out there over the next 12 months and beyond? Yeah, I think in the, in the, in the shorter term, there's been no effects because the government has uh, both Australia usually and, and the world actually usually follows the US United States lead. So whatever the Fed does, our RBA does the same thing. And they've already come back uh, last week and just said that they continued uh, they, they'll be continuing to have that accommodative stance on basically uh, very low interest rates for the foreseeable future for this time point in time. And again, the markets came back and they're happy about that. And what I'm concerned about is, like I said earlier, overstepping the mark where they they go too long for it and creating that asset bubble and in time creating inflation because money becomes almost, you know, there's there's a sense that there's a, a so-called wealth effect that's been created and people feel richer, they've got money in the bank um, and they want to spend it and they'll go out there and buy things whether they need it or not um, and obviously cause inflation and then the government comes or the central bank then comes back in, seeing the inflation go up too fast and then putting the handbrakes on but usually when they do the opposite, they also overstep their mark and put it uh, way too high, too fast. And therefore, they slam shut the, the economy again. And then again, we have another cycle of potentially a, a market correction. Thank you. It's a balancing act, isn't it? It's um, going to be very interesting to see how things play out for us over yeah. the next year or two. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's very, uh, the about two weeks ago, it was interesting. I, I saw a, a, a chart in regards to uh, the, the amount of, I guess, uh, what they call money supply out in the market at the moment. And in the last, literally in the last six months, the money supply has literally almost tripled in terms of the, the amount of money printing. And when they say, when I say printing, it's not, you know, the, the, the printing press, just printing so-called cash and coins out there. It is literally, literally digital currency. So it's just basically figures on a computer system. And that's how the, the government, basically central banks, flood the system with money. So, Terry, what's happening in your world? Most of us have had our head down focusing on our farms. Um, what has played out for you and for your clients in and around the stock market um, in recent times? Yeah, we we were lucky enough that prior to COVID last year, we saw the market uh, in terms of the, the actual market correction coming through. So we just didn't know when. So it would it'd be, you know, um, Silly for me to say that I I picked the right the exact date. I did not. We were and we are always usually a few months too early. And we started selling out our portfolios and getting back into cash because we could see a potential overvaluation of the, of the uh, not only the companies but also there was particularly something there was a risk of the market uh, potentially having quite a dramatic drop. And we did not expect it to be COVID and on the, you know back in in of course in March. So we started selling out in December and January December of 2019 and January of 2020. And by the time the COVID-19 correction came along, we were positioned very correctly uh, with about 80% in cash. And in fact, we started, we were actually quite excited when the COVID-19 market crash happened. And since then, of course, the, the market has now 
what I call overshot its mark. It has not only gone back to where it was, but it's also surpassed that on both the US stock market, but also the Australian stock market. So what we've done now is all the positions we've been able to take on board post-COVID crash, uh, because we are bargain hunters at, at, at heart, and we've now been selling down our portfolio because of the the that, that asset bubble I'm talking about. So things are getting expensive, and generally when things are going, getting overheated and overvalued, we like to sell things and have cash back on our hands to take advantage of a potential market pullback. So that's what, what's been happening. We've been selling down, and uh, it's actually quite incredible because the our usual success rate is is eight out of every ten investments that we've that we've made are usually profitable. But in the last three months, uh, it's been it's going up to about ninety two percent. So you can imagine every one hundred investments we've made or positions we put on, ninety two of them have come back as a profit, which is actually not normal. So has your investment philosophy or your methodology changed in recent times or your focus changed in recent times as a result of the pandemic or other, Terry? Uh, not, not in particular. I mean, in terms of the way we, we invest, we've always been very focused on protection first. So that's always our philosophy where we always look at the downside before the upside. So when things go on sale, we tend to go in and buy. When there's too much good news, we tend to sell things. So we are always the contrarian investor. Uh, just like, I guess, in farming, when you see things like uh, either you know certain products or supplies on sale, we tend to stock up. Just like just like that, we also stock up on our stocks as well. And the only thing that has changed though is we have looked at certain asset classes or industries within the stocks uh, that have been oversold. Uh, for for example, when obviously the pandemic hit certain industries much harder than than other industries, i.e., infrastructure assets like Sydney airports, um, tourism type type stocks, those ones are the ones that we got excited about because I saw that as a um, some of them were what I call irreplaceable assets. So you can't have another, for example, Sydney airport. It just won't happen. Yes, they're they're building another second Sydney airport, but it's not going to be it's going to be a a secondary airport, you won't be a primary airport. So that as a, as a stock, when it fell you know, 40, 50%, we got excited and we got interested. So it's those type of uh, industries when things like a pandemic hits them, we get excited about those. But when you look at the philosophy behind it, we are still ultimately still looking for bargains inside the, the actual market, overall market itself. So how much of it is it about being counter-cyclical in your approach? So I guess... With that Sydney Airport example, you saw value there. Um, so you've entered back into a stock like that where others perhaps wouldn't. Yes. Is it about having a really good um, method and discipline that you teach to your clients and then you know, looking at value creation and even being counter-cyclical? Uh, it's, uh, I would say it's probably not, almost 100% counter-cyclical. So when things go on sale, we have a valuation technique that especially when you're holding things longer term, people say that, you know, it's you, when you sell, you make the money, but in actual fact, it's the opposite. It's when you buy that you make the money. So it's not when you sell, because if you buy right, you sell well. It's just as simple as that. So we generally love to buy things undervalued. So for long-term investment, it's actually very important that uh, you have a methodology in terms of how do you actually value the stock. So if Sydney Airport struck from, say, 8 or $9 down to $6, the question is, you know, is the stock now undervalued or is it still overvalued? And as an asset, if it's undervalued, then 
we buy into it. Uh, but of course, you still have a timing, timing technique as well because it doesn't mean that when things drop, you go in and buy it right away because uh, it's that philosophy of uh, catching a falling knife. So we generally like to see uh, the, the big fund managers, the super funds that come in and they support the market or support that particular stock. And you can actually see that there are tools out there that you can see that. And when they start coming in, we jump on on board the bandwagon with them as well. And then that's that. It's their support that sort of stops that that carnage of the stock, so to speak. And once it drops a certain amount, they start buying in. We as value investors like them. We see value as well. And as long as we understand that, we will jump basically jump in with them as well, knowing that they are already supporting the market because of the amount of money that they're pushing back into the market or uh, into that particular stock. So for those of you that haven't met Terry or heard um, his podcast, I just want to speak to his brilliance. Andrew Roberts has described Terry as our very own equivalent of Warren Buffett. Um, he just is such an advocate for the methodology that Terry uses in how he goes about valuing stocks and finding opportunities. The thing that Farm Owners Academy and Profitable Farmer most respect about Terry and his team and business is that He's in the business of teaching you how to do investing independently for yourself and by yourself. So there are plenty of um, stock market experts out there that will take on and do the heavy lifting for you. Like we're a coaching business for farming families, um, in the same way Terry's business is all about teaching people how to be um, independent, competent and self-reliant investors in their own right. And the results that Terry gets as an investor himself and the results he gets for his clients and many of our clients um, consistently year on year outperform the market um, and continue to yield results. And so it's and that's why, for those of you who haven't heard Terry before, it's why we so strongly advocate his programs um, and his philosophies. Terry, would you be willing to expand just a little bit more on um how you value a company and a little bit more deeply on on some of the philosophies that underpin what you're teaching your clients? Uh, sure. When we look at a company, it's, it's very, I think it's a shift in mindset because a lot of people, when they come into the, the so-called stock market, they either see it as the stock market is either, you know, the word risky or, and it is for the majority of people who don't have an idea of what they're doing. But how uh, I tend to see the stock market is, as is you need to shift your mindset into you're not buying into a stock market or you're not buying into a stock because every stock is a listed company or a listed business, not unlike a farm business. It's just that it's a much bigger business that potentially uh, in, some, in a lot of cases, it's a global business that are listed and therefore you can buy and sell you know, through the stock market the, the listed stock of that business. So if you shift that mindset and become a, 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 a so-called business owner, so what we are doing is now we are buying a a part share of that business that we potentially may like. And therefore, valuation-wise, in terms of how do you actually value a company, just like a farm. If the farm doesn't make money, it's very hard to justify a price tag on a farm. But if a farm is profitable, then down the track, if you want to sell the farm or as an asset, you can. So the stock is the same thing. It is a business. And valuation is very dependent on the profitability of the company. So year in, year out, Primarily, what we want to look at is at least five years of earnings and ensuring that the company itself uh, does make money consistently, but also not only does it make money, but it's also growing as well. So there are metrics like return on equity, which is ROE, 
the return on the assets, uh, EPS or earnings per share growth, uh, free cash flow growth. So they are the metrics that we look at. And just like any other business, like a farm, those metrics do matter for all businesses, whether it's small, medium or large. And if you get those metrics right, then those numbers are, are filtered through the, the valuation methodology. And we've actually built a calculator, so we made it easy as well inside our blueprint program. But by putting those numbers, it gives you a, a rough idea of what the stock is valued at. And if you can buy a stock, especially for a long-term portfolio, under that calculated value, or at, at most sort of at fair value, so at least sort of close to that valuation that, that comes out of it, then long-term, not only will you get the returns you want, but also you can sleep well at night as well. Because I think that's the most important part is when someone builds a long-term portfolio that because it is, it is long-term, you're going to hold that for potentially, you know, years to come, as well as even pass it on to the, gener- the next generation. That portfolio needs to, while it's growing, you need to also sleep well and be able to be comfortable of what you've bought and what you've what it comprises of. So you know that no matter what happens, whether it's pandemic, um, you know, uh, recessions, depressions, whatever, that portfolio or of, of businesses will withstand those type of economic shocks. Terry, would you mind just speaking to the Freedom Trader Mastermind program that sure. you take your clients through? Just yep. came for our members to get a sense of that. Yes. Um, so that they can understand how it is that you help people build up their skill in this area. Sure. Uh, so, in a broader sense, uh, like Jeremy said, we're we're very focused on on the education side because I do believe it's a lifetime skill that everybody should have. And even whether potentially you may outsource part of that to somebody else, like I, a fund manager down the track, yeah, and that can happen. That's not an issue. But knowing what they do is vitally important. So, even if you were to say outsource it, a lot of people make the error of just giving their money away. And they have no idea what's actually happening. So I want to make sure that whether you do it yourself or whether you, you know, you outsource it to say a fund manager, at least you know what's, what they're doing with your money and understanding that allows you to not only be comfortable, but there's therefore have a confidence in, you know, in what's, you know, basically your financial future. So we created the blueprint program. This is our sixth year now of teaching. And uh, I mean, I've been managing money for 15 years and. Why I decided to do this was primarily I was seeing the amount of what I call get rich quick programs out there. And I saw that 20 odd years ago and I've got burnt by that uh, a quarter of a century ago. And funny enough, these days it's probably even more prolific with the internet. So the amount of these get rich quick courses, uh, sometimes I call them scams that they're out there that just catch people by surprise. And they they are there to, I guess I, I call it just be upfront, rip people off. And I wanted to educate people so at least they can spot them from a mile apart, from a mile away. And if they're interested, do the program. And then going forward, they'll know exactly over a six-week period, know, one, um, how to protect their portfolio, uh, two, understand their own psychology about money and how they should be investing uh, both long-term as well as short-term. And then three, understanding how do you actually you know, if you want to get started, how do you actually take action and know what you are doing in terms of finding the stock? And also importantly, when do you actually buy and when do you actually sell the stock? So all that is sort of all encompassing that in that program. And I find it very important that not only is it a, a learning program, but I want people to take action. So when they learn, they do. They learn, they do. 
And within that three to six month period, then not only do you have the education, but you've actually physically already invested in a small way in the stock market. And then when you see the results, because ultimately it's not, it's not anything that I say or other students' results that proves that it works. It's ultimately their, uh, the, you know, say a farmer who does the program, it's their own results. And if they see the results themselves firsthand from their own investment success, then automatically the confidence is there. And that's how they trust the program and what I call scale up. In other words, start putting more of their, their farm profits into the program. And that's when they really see things really shift by building wealth outside the farm. So just on that point, Terry, we've got listeners, no doubt, who would have 100% of their wealth in their farm and their focus is very much on um, building out the performance of their farm business and then we'd have at the other extreme people who are highly diversified investing in and outside directly or indirectly through self-managed super funds and those things. Yes. What would you say about the importance of diversifying your portfolio outside of agriculture? I think it's vitally important because it's really ultimately it's a high risk of, you know, not only being in business, but in inside a farming business, which is very potentially cyclical where, you know, you've got weather, you've got trade wars, you've got commodity prices that affect your, your business and your profitability. And then sometimes for well, a lot of farms, they also get the big squeeze from the retailers like Woolies and Coles. So therefore, very important that you're always you know, there are lean years and there are good years. And in the good years, it's very important that you do sock away uh, a percentage of your farm profits outside of what you do. And whether it's a farm or any other business, it's important that you do so. So therefore, if something does go wrong and it, you know, it can be a bad year uh, through, say, weather or crops, uh, not doing what they, they're supposed to do through harvest, bad harvest, at least they've got wealth outside that supports them through the lean years. So I would say that it's vitally important. And, and I've seen that. Through, you know, because I've been with Farmers Academy for three years now and just seeing some of the farms who've come on board way back and they shifted their that mindset three years ago and now seeing the fruits of that, of that, you know, that, of, um, of the labor of them putting into uh, that, that action plan that we put in place three, three, two or three years ago. It's great to hear. And we see that in their results as well of farm, Terry. So um, very pleasing results for so many. Just on that, Terry, I understand um, your program is very much or has very much been based around active investing um, and and looking to find value and then realise value within your clients, our clients' portfolios. I understand you're launching a new version of your Freedom Trader program that has a slightly different Focus. Would you mind speaking to version 2.0? Because I actually think when I reflect on the farmers that I know, hmm. that potentially version 2.0 is going to be of even more interest to them than version 1.0. Yeah, sure. Uh, the reason why I decided to go uh, create version 2.0, and it's been sort of years in the making, I'd probably say, and over the last six months, we've reshot the, pretty much the entire program. And the, the primary focus now is, is because of, of the amount of students that we, we have and uh, the amount of farmers also in, inside our program. And just from the feedback that a lot of them are either are probably either you know, time poor, just too busy with either the farm or also their family life as well. 
and they want a more of a passive approach where you find the great great company or the great stock and you hold on to that more longer term. And does that mean that you know for, you hold that forever? Probably not. However, you know if it is prudent to say review the portfolio every quarter or at least every year, and then that way you know what's either overvalued, undervalued companies that are underperforming. Uh, I'd, I'd say take out the weeds from the garden, so to speak, and then keep the flowers in that bed, and then keep the flowers keep on growing. And version 2.0 is now focused on uh, not only just the short-term active investing that we used to do, but it's also from the very start, it allows the farmers to choose their own path. So we don't, uh, we bo- both uh, work very well together. However, there are some farmers who are extremely busy. Therefore, uh, at that point in time, once they begin the program, we ask them to choose their path depending on, you know, their uh, either their location, their, uh, their their seasonality, where they're at in their life as well, and also potentially their farm business. So they're very busy on the farm, still building it and still just setting the foundation right with, uh, say, Farm Owners Academy, their program, then they're probably better off on the longer term approach until their farm is off, you know, the foundation set. Now they've got employees running it and they've got a lot of free time, then go back into the active approach. So therefore, go into the uh, the longer term approach, which is what 2.0 does focus on. And I think that's going to help a lot of farmers. Brilliant. Thanks, Terry. So um, for our clients listening, part of our Platinum Mastermind, we're delighted to have Terry join us in September in Melbourne to um, go into a deep dive with us and really teach us a lot of the investment theory and principles that he advocates with his members. So we're looking forward to having you in Melbourne, Terry. Um, In terms of the approach that you take in version 2.0, is it fundamentally different where it is more of a long-term view and are the stocks that you'll be you might advocate um, are they different from that that we would be considering if we were taking more of an active involvement and perhaps a shorter term view in terms of finding the the companies they're actually quite similar but there are certain companies that should not be, I actually would say that shouldn't be sold because they continually grow because we use them every day. They're, they're goods and products every single day. And they are global companies that keep on expanding beyond uh, not only their countries, but globally, and they keep on growing. So they are the companies that we want to hold long-term. And I think the, the biggest difference though, is if we are hold, creating a long-term portfolio uh, valuation that we spoke about earlier is vitally important because if you overpay for something, when you're actively, say, trading the stock or uh, sort of buying and selling it, then that's probably okay. But if you're holding it long term and say you've paid, you know, if a stock is worth $10 and now you've paid $15, just like a farm, you overpay for a farm, you're not going to make money on that farm land, so to speak. And same as a stock. And therefore, you make money on the on the purchase. So when you're going long term, it's vitally that after you found a stock, we want, we want, we want to make sure that uh, that the fundamentally the 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 business or the stock uh, is is stable and therefore fits in the portfolio. So therefore you can sleep well at night knowing that that business is not going to go go bust the next day. And then two, know the valuation and buy undervalued or buy at least fair value. Don't overpay for it because if you overpay for it, you've already paid for your capital gains down a track. So you're not going to physically make any money. So that's the the vital component on that side. And then the other part that's important as well, which I share within the in our program, is how do you actually know who else is supporting the stock? So just as an individual, I will never say that I'm the smartest person in you know in the markets. There is no way that I, for example, myself, and any farmer for that nature, that 
sort of in their own room, does their own research, would be able to outcompete, say, a, a, a very smart fund manager, which has, say, 100 employees that do this every day, and they're researching stocks, talking to their customers, talking to their, their the, you know, the, uh, the company suppliers. There is no way that we can outsmart these guys. So if we're holding something long-term, we want to make sure that we are also uh, buying to a stock that is, that is held by very smart fund managers around the world and in a big scale. So, and I'm talking about billion dollar funds, which might hold a 50 or $100 million position. And then what that does is it gives us a very sense of, of I guess, peace when we build the long-term portfolio and we know that we are now holding a stock that these guy, these very smart fund managers also hold and support. And when they temporarily, for example, that stock that we hold drops in price, we know these guys will jump in and buy even more, again, pushing the stock price back up. So that's that three foundational key principles. Thanks, Terry. Are you advocating local and global stocks? And do you analyse and look for value across the global stock market? Or um, is your focus more local? Uh, no, definitely. Uh, I would say I am 90% global and 10% local. The reason is because our market only represents about 2% of the global economy anyway. And I can count in five hands, uh, sorry, in, the, in five fingers, the amount of global stocks that are that are in our own local stock market, the like the likes of say CSL, Cochlear, which have expanded successfully overseas, but apart from that, most of our stocks dominate our Australian landscape, i.e., the big four banks. Uh, the um, what else? Uh, of course, m- most of the, the Aussie miners as well. So we, our market is dominated by these companies, and they really have not got been able to grow successfully or go outside of our country. Therefore, they don't grow. We can tr- we trade them, but holding long term, these type of stocks uh, just won't grow our portfolio. So we love the, especially the US market. Which, if I mean, if I look at around me as I'm talking to you right now, my desktop, you know, the Microsoft. Uh, I look at my PC, and it's got in- an Intel chip. Uh, it's got Nvidia, the graphics chip. Um, I use Facebook every day. I use Google for my searches. So they they're all stocks that are listed um, basically on the US boss. And then when I open up my my fridge or my medicine cabinet, every single medication that I we have in our medicine cabinet is not is not a local pharmaceutical. It's actually a global, like the likes of Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson, etc. They are all global companies. So if we want to grow our portfolio year in year out, we have to go global and think globally. And what's the balance of old established stocks versus some of these newer tech based stocks? Do you have a comment about how you strike a balance there? Uh, I generally like as if when I talk about a a new tech based stock, I, I want to see history. So if they've just newly floated on the market and have either no history or a string of unprofitable years, I I shy away from that. So I don't really get caught up in the hype of this stock is going to be the next Facebook type thing. So um, until they show profitability at least their first two or three years of consistent profitability and know that it's not a a one hit wonder. That's when we get interested. So we would prefer to step back and give away some of the prop, the initial profits that some people might make out of that. But then that way, we also avoid disasters. And we've never really had a disaster in our portfolio because simply because something that's been around for a long time and has history, uh, there is no need to go into the the highly speculative new type stocks, either whether it's technology or any, any other industry. If they're not making money, we don't like to get involved with that. So we want to see profitability first. 
So I might be incorrect here, Terry, but I feel like there are a lot of Australian novice and um, even experienced investors who shy away from investing internationally out of fear around exchange rate risk. How do you navigate that given that you are investing globally and even in relatively young stocks in America and other parts of the, the planet? Yeah, that's actually a great question, Jeremy. And uh, this is my fear when I first got into the US markets years ago as well. But the important thing is that we, we have to realize, firstly, that the opportunities are there. So there's no point in shying away from the opportunities just because of exchange risk. So once we get over that hurdle and we know the, the opportunities are there, okay, how do we go about that? So the first thing that we do is if we are opening up a brochure account, we keep it in Aussie dollars. So it doesn't mean that if we go into the US market, we swap the entire portfolio of our cash into US dollars to get ready to buy US, US stocks or European stocks or for that matter. So we are still in Australian dollars and it is only then that if we find an opportunity at that point in time, then we swap it to US dollars or it's automatically done by the broker anyway. And at that point in time, that's when the exchange rate actually potentially could affect you in terms of buying buying or selling. And what I've found though is in the last quarter of a century that I've been in the game is that over time, it actually balances out. Sometimes you benefit from, from the exchange rate. Sometimes you lose out on exchange rate by the time you sell. So as long as you're not sort of buying and selling and then swapping the money back for spending in, you know, in Australia or in our home country, then it actually does not matter. It just balances out over time. So I don't, I no longer, which I used to, I used to hedge it actively and I just found that a complete waste of time as well, as well as stress. And because I'm not swapping the money back to immediately spend and it's a long-term portfolio, I've left it there as it is. And um, at times when I still have, I have more Australian dollars, I shift it back into the, um, I transfer it into the broken account to add more into it or scale up, but then it's still, it's still kept as Aussie dollar until I actually physically need to buy something uh, that is US domi uh, dollar dominated. Thanks, Terry. My next question, Terry, is when things like pandemics and recessions hit, I think often we opt out. We sort of lean back from um, the stock market and opt not to participate. Um, what would your comment be there? Because what you made a comment before about how you predicted that something was at play and then were counter-cyclical and it seems to me, based on what you said, that you performed really well over what's been a global crisis. Um, what would you say about that mindset of, of fearing major global um, events and stepping hmm. out rather than leaning in? Yep. Uh, a lot of people fear that because they, they get mesmerised by, I guess, the news, the daily headlines from newspapers and the news channels itself. And we actually love, uh, it's, it's important that we learn to love market corrections and market uncertainty and economic uncertainty because through Blueprint, you'll learn a system that actually sees that in advance time. And we will never pick the day, but we'll always be early. But we'll know for a fact, every single one from COVID-19 to GFCs to Brexits, we see that ahead of time and we know what to do about them. And by not fearing it, it means that, but, and not only not fearing, but looking forward to these corrections because post these type of crashes, they're in fact the most profitable times for a both a short-term trader as well as a long-term investor because we as individuals get to therefore go in and scoop up bargain assets at bargain prices. So it's just like you know, shopping. 
you know, when we see toothpaste on sale, we tend to, we know that we're going to use it as a family. So we tend to stock up. So it's funny how people through fear and through headlines that they actually get scared off through investing and get, get scared off uh, by seeing market market prices crash. But in actual fact, as a longer term investor, we, we, we have to learn how to love them because if you know what you're doing and you see them way in advance, you're already in cash. And when they happen, put that cash to play and then reap the benefits afterwards. And just on that point, I reckon there's a few of us out there going, oh, look, I'll, I'll get into the stock market and into investing when I get to here at some point in the future. Mm. What's, the, what's the, um, the risk of not getting started early or um, putting it off and you know, making it something that you'll do down the track? Yep. I think there's two main things. One is is definitely inflation because every year what people think as investing is actually risky. Not doing something is probably more risky because through inflation and through the loss of purchasing power, which is what inflation actually is, you are losing 2 or 3% of your money every single year. Whether you know it or not, it happens. And therefore, I say that you have to learn how to invest. Of course, do it properly because if you don't know how to invest, then yes, you could lose money. Uh, so that's the important thing. And then the other part is also compounding because you lose the aspect of compounding. And the more longer you wait, which is what I see people doing, in actual fact, they're losing the compounding effect. So having a great system is one thing, but what is that that secret source on top is in fact the compounding effect of years to come. So the more time we waste on procrastinating on the investing side, you lose that, that time of compounding. So as we get older, which we all do, we never get younger. Therefore, we tend to, therefore, as we approach, say, so-called retirement, we will therefore take more risks down a track in order to catch up with the Joneses. So when we see our friends and family, they've got a certain amount of wealth and we are not there. So we now want to get into it years down the track because we haven't done it earlier because we, we made that decision to procrastinate. But now in order to catch up, you're probably going to need to take extreme risk to get to where they are at. Yet you could have taken far less risk and just plot along with a systematic process and invest safely all along that, that whole period of time. The power of compounding and the value of using our time and the time yeah. that we have yeah. cleverly, it's just so important. It's a, it's a comment that Greg Johnson speaks to so often that we've just got to get in and make small steps incrementally over time rather than trying oh, to yeah. do a lot later yeah. on. So thanks. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, to, to, to just to share my story, I mean, people see where I am now and they say, oh, Terry, you're an overnight success. But no, no, they, they never saw the beginning. My beginning was actually quite atrocious. I had two years of very bad performance where I lost over 100,000 by doing or, and learning from the wrong people. And then it was another six years, <coughs> six and a half years later that through knowing what to do by learning the right thing and then uh, being patient enough to have that six or seven year time frame. And, I, and in fact, I had a 10 year time frame. But I got there in six and a half to seven years. So knowing that, you know, having a great system, but that time allowed me to get to where I am. And then once you get to that, what I call um, a, a tipping point, then it almost like a, it's like a snowball that comes down um, through the, down a mountain. It just doesn't stop because through compounding, it just gets bigger and bigger. And it also gets easier and easier as we not only have more and more capital because of compounding, but also through the experience of uh, of doing what we do year in year out, and you become investing becomes almost second nature. So once when someone gives me a balance sheet these days, or or shows me a stock chart or of of a company, immediately my brain already knows whether it's 
within five seconds, I know whether it's a good investment or not potentially to look even deeper. And that's what Blueprint will give people. So just to give people some brightness of the future, Terry, 25 plus years in, Hmm. do you mind describing how life does look like for you? Uh, as in what has happened as, at, at this point in time? Yeah, what have you achieved for you and your household that others might look forward to if they really lean in and right. um, get the lessons and apply what you teach over a 25-year period? Right. Uh, for me, I think it's that one word, firstly, it's it's choice as well, choice in life. So immediately once I was technically financially free, then that allowed me to pursue the passions that I wanted. And I've actually... Uh, it's not for everyone, but I love travel. So I love exploring the world and do, and I'm very outdoors. So I love running around the world with my wife. And uh, generally what I like investing also is because no matter where I am in the world, I've always got my backpack and my my laptop. And as long as there's internet connection, I can, I can be in the markets. Uh, and generally still while on a cruise ship or on a holiday in a hotel room, I'm literally just still prepare, potentially preparing it. And there are some days that, you know, it only takes you really half an hour a day. It doesn't take that long or an hour or two a week if you're more passive on the long-term approach. So it's just given me a lot of choice in life. And uh, the the thing that I was going for was firstly financial freedom. And then once that I've got achieved, which means really ultimately it's just paying, being able to to not have to work because you're, the, the portfolio supports you financially in terms of you know, paying all your bills and putting food on the table. And then the, the, um, the next step or phase two was then uh, chasing financial abundance. And that's really being able to really just do whatever you want to do uh, and being able to afford it and not have to think about the money side. So that's ultimately, I think, what I want for our farmers is they run their farm. It's, it's their passion. It's great. But make sure that they take that money uh, from the profit side from their farm, but also diversify and start creating something of, of, of value outside the farm and gives them a peace of mind. And also gives them freedom as well, um, and potentially, uh, the, you know, the, the most. I think the biggest because I, I speak to a lot of farmers as well. One of the biggest problems that I'm seeing as well is a lot of them want to potentially transition uh, and give their children the farm as well. But they, part of them, that they, they they see their future as sort of bleak, where they can't afford to without selling a portion of the farm, and therefore, and I want to show that you actually can as long as you've got time on your hands and. You have a system that works down the track. You can give away the farm if you want to give away to the next generation, but also having a very self-supporting financial nest egg on the side, which is why you've got to start. Yeah, I think what you've spoken to just there achieves three things for me. One, it might allow the on-farm children to take the farm and see it grow into the next generation. Mm. It, it creates independent retirement for the senior generation if done well and it caters too for the non-farm children through succession mm. that they can achieve a reasonable inheritance, if you like, without it um, risking to deplete the size of the family farm. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and then that's where, you know, if you do it properly, uh, then everything's all, what you just mentioned, is all fully achieved. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, Terry, I'm looking forward with Jane to investing in and being part of your Blueprint Program 2.0, um, it's perfect timing for us to lean back into this and take a more um, active and long-term view of our non-farm interests. And so really looking forward to that, really looking forward to having um, 
the opportunity to learn from you over that time. And the from what I understand, the support that we get to enjoy for being part of your program and um, the way in which we get to um, leverage all the tools and support and be active as we make that journey. We're really looking forward to that. Um, and I hope that it's relevant as well to many of our listeners and that um, those that are interested reach out and um, and jump on and get to know your programs and introduce themselves to you. Yeah, no, awesome. Yeah, no, and look, looking forward to uh, yeah being part of your journey as well, Jeremy, down the track. Thanks, Terry. Really appreciate your time. Just in finishing, I often ask two questions to my sure. listener, to my um, interviewees. What's the, I'm going to ask you it slightly differently. Who's the most profound mentor that you've had in your life and and what was the best piece of advice that that person gave you? I think my profound mentor, even though I've never physically met him, is is Warren Buffett. And um, when I reached out to him 15 years ago, and surprisingly, he reached back through through you know old old school handwriting. And uh, the the effect he had it was was really not only on the investing side, but he saved me from going towards that get 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 rich thing, which I was already burnt. And then just getting advice from that to now take it easy. And you know, basically, what the message was: I'm young, and at that point in time, do it correctly and have a, a philosophy or investment philosophy in place. So it's sort of a a, com- a guiding compass through the years. And not only on the investing side, but I think the other part was that um, uh, he's just not only what he says, but through just watching him live over the life, where he's obviously one of the wealthiest per- people on the, on the planet, but yet he still lives very humbly and and, and simply. And uh, is pretty much giving away his wealth, and uh, that's what I I want to do down the track as well. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. And Terry, last question: What would you say as advice to a younger you? A younger you, a younger me. Okay. Uh, stop being impatient, <laughs> and uh, follow a, a proven process from the very start, from the very get go. As long as you know it works, don't deviate. Just uh, doggedly. Stay on path, and you will get there. Basically, yeah, and 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 uh, and stop looking at uh, stop getting mesmerized by uh, the next shiny object. <laughs> Great advice, Terry. As always, wonderful to get your sense of the global marketplace. Um, good to get a sense of how you go about what you do and how you support your clients. And I know that so many of our farmer listeners will have just got huge value from our time together and thank you so much and um, well done on your launch of Business Blueprint 2.0. Always good to speak to you. Great to get um, your take on the global economy and the global stock market. Um, Wonderful to get your sense on how things might play out as we all recover from COVID. Wonderful to hear more about your investment theory and your investment philosophies and methods and how you're teaching that and sharing that with your members through Freedom Trader Blueprint version 1.0 and 2.0. So, Terry, as always, great to spend some time with you. Thanks for your time and being so generous in all of your sharing. Thank you, Jeremy, for having me on your podcast. Always a pleasure. Take care, guys. Thank you and bye for now.